This is an ABC podcast. Coming up, we meet a man who's made a life's work of listening into other people's conversations, shared intimacies and banalities in an urban setting. This is the world of Oslo Davis. More from Oslo in a moment. I'm Jonathan Green. This is Blueprint, Places, Spaces, Food, Gardens and Design. We'll also spend a significant period uh, boiling orange peel with Annie Smithers. But trust me, it will be worth it. Uh, You'll meet interior design power pair Juliet Arendt and Sarah Jane Pike. And Colin Bissett considers that pinnacle of human inventive endeavour, the drawing pin. Uh, my guest is a, is a paradox. He's a he's a man lost in a city with which he is unaccountably intimate. He's a, he's a sampler of its incidentals, the little the little third spaces that I think feed our social souls. The the passing nod, an overheard murmur, a, 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 a smile, a wry glance on the on the tram, which gives away the location. Although Sydney has them too, of course. We are talking about Melbourne in part, um, and Oslo Davis. And Oslo is a a student, a student of life, and a student of, of observation of lives. He's an illustrator and artist. His overheard cartoons have propelled him to a certain national notoriety. Uh, yeah, he's cut out this space uh, for for. A purposeful rendering of eavesdroppings into something which is ongoingly delightful. He has a new book. It is called Oslo's Melbourne. Hello, Oslo. Hello, Jonathan. What do you think of Melbourne, really? I think it's often overrated. It has some great parts to it, but I think people can tend to go on about it too much. You, however, I mean, you've, you've, you've developed, I think that's probably true, <laughs> it, it, perhaps there's a, a, a fundamental insecurity at, at the core of that. Well, second city, cultural capital, sporting capital, I don't know what Melbourne is anymore, most livable city. There's all these uh, names that we've put on this place and it's all usually in relation to other cities, isn't it? <laughs> well, this, and this is the interesting thing about the way in which you approach this city, that I think it's a, uh, it, it's a way of being in an urban space. You know, it's not necessarily about here, because urban spaces have a lot of similar characteristics that make what you do, your kind of observation, possible. Well, I think I, if I lived in Sydney, if I lived in Perth, if I lived in Istanbul, I'd be doing the same thing. Mm. I would be engaging with the world around me in these cities in, in a similar kind of way. And it's not a way that many of us do it, perhaps not as consciously as you do. Well, it pays the bills for me to go out and <laughs> listen to people say their things, perhaps listening in illegally. I don't know what the law is these days, but I get out into the city, I sit on a park bench probably too close to a stranger and lean in to overhear their conversation, they're having hands-free with somebody. Has that ever brought you grief? (laughs) Well, you know, everyone would know this. As soon as you hear something delicious, the closer you get, the quieter they get. (laughs) Because even if they're not looking at you, they can sense you and you've got to find that perfect balance to... I'm, I'm thinking that for a man of your <laughs> proclivities, the mobile phone has been a godsend. The, the well, everyone, with those earbuds, everyone's talking now. I thought it would have been the death of overhearing, you know. Once upon a time, public transport was the place to overhear people because we talked to people on public transport, strangers. We chatted with somebody mm. and I thought, oh, everyone's on their phones now. But in fact... People are still talking. <laughs> the nice thing about overhearing is that it, it you formalise something that we have an awareness of, that we are we are in that realm as we move around our urban spaces. And here you are documenting that for us, holding that up to the light, you know, showing us about something about the way in which, yeah, we all we all move around this place. And overhearing is such an indicator of 
so much more. You might only hear a sentence or a, a quick snippet, but already... Do you extrapolate when you hear those? Oh, Do you definitely. create a, a world? I assume so much. You know, <laughs> <laughs> this person's, you know, in the middle of a divorce or, or this person, you know, has some medical issue or this person has... Uh, issues with their children and need to resolve some legal thing, or it's banal, they, they can't decide whether to buy non-fat milk or normal milk. It's it, There's all these things in the background. Just the, the spaces of the city create different, I was going to say different contexts, but that's not quite right. I mean, obviously they do, but do they, they create places in which people feel uh, an ease to be intimate? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you line up to buy a ticket at the cinema, which admittedly not many of us do these days compared to the past, but the cinema queue is a delicious time to hear an overheard. People are happy, they're excited, they're out with friends or a date, they're up, and they kind of couldn't care less who hears what they I'm, have to say. I'm immediately <laughs> thinking of the Woody Allen Marshall yeah. McLuhan moment. In, in the line. <laughs> yeah. You know nothing of my work. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's it. And that, that's so true. Bookshops too. I mean, if ever you want to hear some overhearing, um, just go into the kids section of a busy bookshop and you'll hear parents say things that they would not, you know, normally say in, in normal civilised life. Which is revelatory of, of the city, revelatory of the urban experience, that it, it is constantly creating intimacies despite its... its bigness and, it, you know, it's apparently the, the, the obverse of that. It's apparently a soulless place of generality, but really it's creating all these little pockets. Oh, they're all, they're, they're, you think of the city having all these little pockets or bubbles uh, floating around and within these bubbles are these amazing worlds that people, you know, uh, inhabit, uh, just floating around at the football or at the art gallery, these little spots where people engage in a very different way to how people might engage in other parts of the city. So is the city the, the city or is the city the people within the city? Yeah, well, I mean, I would say it's the people, definitely. This, this, these park benches and these cinemas are all just uh, fabrications or stages for us to do our little do, dance. Do you have a favourite <laughs> park bench? Is there a place that we would find you constantly lurking? <laughs> Well, you could find me lurking uh, in in those places that I mentioned before, but I mean any shopping mall, um, you know, and I don't mind going into those those terrible places uh, and to eavesdrop, sitting outside waiting for my wife to come out of the fruit and veg shop. Uh, you know, I'll pick up six or seven overheards. I suspect it's it's like being becoming a bird watcher, you know, for most people <laughs> until they train themselves through, you know, pattern recognition to see certain things in nature. If I imagine there would have been a time when you didn't overhear much and well, then, yeah. then you taught yourself to listen to that. Well, that's it. And I, I think I've developed an ear to find and overheard that will be good. So, for example, I might hear someone talking on their phone and it's a fairly innocuous conversation, but I know it's going to get juicy. So I might, <laughs> I might trail that person for a couple of blocks and so I can get the... So I can get the meat. <laughs> the, the book documents the, the the time of our recent difficulty and trauma, the pandemic. Yeah, it does. Um, there was a great little project I worked on uh, for someone. Uh, we did some T-shirts to raise some money for Beyond Blue and someone called it Locktown, um, no, re-labelling Melbourne as Locktown. And I just thought, yeah, that was really nice. And I drew a picture of... Flinders Street Station covered in trees, just kind of like the end of days, um, Planet of the Apes kind of uh, vines running over the city. What, what, what did it do to you? I mean, Melbourne, for those who, who don't realise it, had a succession of, of, of lockdown periods. I mean, for a man like yourself, and you you know, there, there's, there's an element of the flaneur uh, about you, Oslo. Um, yeah, and, uh, and I couldn't... Flaneur, if that's a flan. Couldn't flan, is that the <laughs> Yeah, it was tricky. There were still places within the five kilometres or so on the, on the river trail or we could still go shopping. 
it was just a bit trickier to work out who was speaking underneath the, the face masks. Well, yeah, that that is, yes. <laughs> and and also to detect what they were saying. Yeah, which is, which it, is awkward. It, it made a certain level of uh, difficulty. But, um, yeah, it was fun. I mean, I had to find other projects and came up with different things. Were the conversations the same? Um, was, there, was there a shift in the tenor? There was less talk, for sure. There was less of a freedom or a just a, a kind of a... Uh, you know, a love of life or, you know, extrapolating on different topics and uh, going going for it in a conversation. Everyone was sneaking out of their house, getting what they needed and then scuttling back in. Uh, so there was definitely a different tone. And then there was, of course, the, the Prague Spring of our emergence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I walked through the city today and it's, it's, it's alive. It's the spring... You know, the darling buds of May, or in, in November at least, it's it's really sort of exploding out there. Have you ever taken your, your observational skills, you know, into into regional Australia, into smaller places? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm wondering what the, how, how that sort of, <laughs> are people more loquacious in a smaller town? Are they, do they have longer to stop and talk? My parents used to live up in country Victoria, so I used to visit, visit up there a fair bit, and there were long conversations, possibly too long, uh, in the in the supermarket queues, people talking about their, you know, sore backs or uh, kids with, uh, you know, injuries and stuff like that that you'd have to put up with to to get to the front of the queue. But uh, didn't notice a massive difference, but maybe the conversations were a bit more relaxed and less time sensitive. So people, wherever they may be, kind of a constant thing. Yeah, I was in Canada recently and mm. they were talking, you know, as freely and as loosely as, as anyone would in a major city of You're Melbourne. You're in Quebec. Yeah, I was in Quebec City. That's right. French? That's Predominantly French, for and sure. How is your French? Uh, not so great, so but it got better. how's your French eavesdropping? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I picked up some words. I knew when they were talking about me, that, um, which is probably all, all I needed to know. This strange person over there is listening yeah, to Yeah, what's he doing, lingering there with an empty coffee? But, yeah, it was great. And the English is, is available if you need it. Have you ever overheard something you wish you hadn't? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I, I do get a bit uncomfortable when people reveal too much. People do really hang their lives out to dry, you know, sometimes uh, in terms of laying it all out there, having some really heartfelt conversations on the phone, you know, their traumas, their sort of life stresses. Uh, and sometimes it's a little bit too much, to it's be honest. An I mean, it's an interesting <laughs> and, and paradoxical thing. Here you are sort of documenting the conversations of a city and yet when that happens, when someone is on their phone with another person, they're in no space at all really, are they? They're in a, in, in a third environment. Yeah, well, my wife reckons that we should even ban conversations on the phone in the car hands-free because, you know, when you take a call when you're driving, even if it's through the car system, you forget the last three kilometres you've, you've driven. And so... Talking on the phone in, in any capacity just sort of stops time. But this must be an inc a constant annoyance for you. Here are people quite close at hand, but in, a, in an environment where you can't hear them, possibly having fascinating conversations. <laughs> Stop yeah. talking in your cars, people. <laughs> yeah, bring it outside for the rest of us. <laughs> that is the thing about technology, isn't it? I mean, and, and perhaps it's the thing which is undermining our sense of our cities and the places in which we live, that it, it puts us into an anonymous anywhere yeah, it does, doesn't it? And for better or worse, and it comes back to that thing that you said that uh, cities are made of people, and that's 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 what it's about. Um, we're we're all about the the connections we make with friends and family, and and even strangers we meet. It's it's all about that human human connection mm. through technology or or otherwise. It's not necessarily that there's a park bench or or a public transport to take. Uh, it's it's about us and what we need to get off our chest or what we need to, uh, you know, reveal to the world consciously or unconsciously. I'm, I'm wondering, I'm just sitting wondering how, how, how different your work would have been if you were a Sydney observer, whether that is, is there a different conversational tone in that 
allegedly brash, quick city. Yeah, well, David Williamson does that well, doesn't he? Well, he's done yes. that well over his career, sort of plotting the different uh, languages, maybe, uh, in terms of, or Englishes uh, of the two cities, uh, the Sun City and uh, and Melbourne and the comparisons and, and all that sort of thing. We'd bring you into this too, Brisbane, but <laughs> yes, <laughs> another language and again. Adelaide. And Adelaide. I mean, what's well, an interesting thing about... You know, our shared sense of Australian self, but with with such wonderful and, and subtle regional difference. But very little uh, accent difference. But, uh, yeah, again, in Canada, people said, are there accents in, in Australia? And, you know, that's, um, that's another big conversation, isn't it? But I would say there's not a lot, but let's take it to the next level, as you say. And is there a difference in what we talk about in these cities? Mm. Yeah, I mean, you would have to do a, a, a survey over a number of years to find that one out. I don't know. If you go to the western suburbs of Sydney or the valley in Brisbane or, you know, the outer suburbs, the northern suburbs of, of Adelaide, I don't know. Our concerns are probably pretty similar, I would suggest. Do you do, you do that geographically even within your, your hometown of Melbourne? Do you move socioeconomically around the place? Yeah, for sure. I make a point of going to new suburbs or places that I'm interested to explore, albeit briefly or whatever. And are the concerns universal? Uh, you head down to the, the rich suburbs of the bay and you, <laughs> you pick up different concerns. You He's know. out the Porsche for a fortnight. Yeah, that, that is real. I would admit it's, it's very, very real uh, and humorous. And the rest of the Melbourne, rest of Melbourne loves to hear that, to re reaffirm those stereotypes. <laughs> and, I, and I live in, in, in Footscray, which is a inner city, but traditionally working class suburb. Mm. And the, the, the conversations that go on there, huge immigration that's happened there over the last uh, 50 years, uh, are very pedestrian, very down-to-earth, very sort of uh, open and uh, honest and um, kind of raw and but natural. Course, but, but apart from your impeccable conversational French, you, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of other languages spoken on the streets of, of this town and in other Australian cities too. The English listener can be at a bit of a disadvantage. Yeah, sure. You go to Footscray Market or um, some of the markets in Sunshine in the far west of Melbourne and even out further to Tarnit uh, with huge uh, African communities. Um, they are seriously uh, beautifully different worlds out there um, in terms of language and conversation. Well, you have a lot to learn, you see. You must you must become conversational across a wide range of dialect. Yeah, I, I know a couple of languages in a very small part of them, but um, unfortunately none have helped me so far <laughs> connecting with these groups. <laughs> this is Oslo Davis. He's a, an illustrator and artist who has a, a love-hate relationship with the city of Melbourne based largely on the things that we say and that he hears. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, his new book is Oslo's Melbourne and you'll find that in shops in time for your just in time for your seasonal deliberations. Kitchen Rudimental, a series in which chef and author Annie Smithers investigates the very basics of kitchen craft. Hello, Annie. Hi, Jonathan. We're at the exciting moment in your kitchen. I'm here and I've got absolutely no idea what you're going to make. It's very kind of you to drive up. Well, it's... A, it's we lovely. share the driving now, don't we? We do a bit. It's a very good thing. Because Annie lives in regional Victoria. And you live in Melbourne. In sort of. Deep. Deep. Yes. Deep in a Melbourne. But Annie lives quite close to her delightful restaurant, Du Fermier, in Trentham, at her farm in Lionville. That's correct. Which she makes things, grows what time, them. What, what time of the year are we at, though? We're allegedly approaching summer. That's why it's about five degrees oh, outside. Oh, no, we're talking about... Um, I'm, oh, we, we're Christmas! Going, yes, that's the word. <laughs> Deck Festive the halls. Cheer. Yes. You know, You're going to make something jolly. Well, I did want to ask you mm -hmm. what you like to give as a... You, you have lots of people in your life that you'd like to give a token, a, little thing. a yeah. little thing to. Piece of coal. Piece of coal. Not really. 
Scotty. <laughs> Is that you, Scotty? <laughs> no. hmm. Yeah, I know what I you mean. I will go now. I know what you mean. You need just a lovely little... A gift. Yeah. A gift. Do you tend to purchase gifts or do you make gifts? Um, oh, it can be a bit of both. Yeah. What do you got in mind? Well, I sort of have a couple of pet theories in my life that, <clears throat> excuse me, is that we are all, yeah, a lot of us are very endowed with things. Yeah. We have a lot of things that we don't actually need. Mm -hmm. So there's something about trotting off to the, the palace of uh, commodification being, you know, one of those amazing super shop, shop things that we don't have in Lionville and saying, oh, I'll get this at the National Geographic store and I'll get that at the bookstore and I'll get that at that. And you have this list of gifts for people mm -hmm. and you go and spend all this money that mm -hmm. you don't necessarily have on all these gifts that nobody really wants and they just, it just is such a terrible thing. When instead you could make something nice. If you go to the supermarket and buy yourself a bit of this and a bit of that and you spend the day making something and you package it all up nicely and you give it to their, your friends um, or your, te the, your kids' teachers or all of that list of the people that, that list, need yep. a little thank yep. you, yep. I think it means a great deal more because it's actually about you navigating something that you may not be sure of but also doing something with your hands and your heart that is a little different than running around a shopping Shop. centre. Yes, the making, the making is an act of love the and make, caring The itself. making is, and it doesn't mean that it has to be perfect. It's just the fact that you took the time to make them something, and I think that's a lovely thing. Okay. So on, so on my little board here, I have two oranges. Now, oranges have a funny... I have a funny relationship with oranges at Christmas time. Mm-hmm. Because as a child, my mother chose that the gift that we would give to our primary school teachers and things was something called a clove orange. That's an orange with a whole of cloves stuck in it. Yeah. Did you ever make those? No, but I've seen them, I think. They yeah. Sh they shrivel up. And they shrivel up and things. they smell beautiful, but they, they're great in, I don't know, I don't know whether they were meant to put them in their small straw or mm -hmm. what the thing was, mm -hmm. but my poor little poking you know, all the six, in. seven, eight, <laughs> nine-year-old hands have this searing memory of the sharp point of the cloves, you know, digging into your finger as you push it into the orange skin. We're discovering early childhood trauma. Trauma, it is. <laughs> so when I look at oranges and I think of Christmas, mixed feelings. I have very mixed feelings. But there are two things that I do with oranges for Christmas gifts. Um, one we're going to do today, but I will provide both recipes on the Blueprint for Living page. At the Radio National website. Um, so the one that we're not going to do is a beautiful version of Florentines. Mm -hmm. Now, it does require some Seville orange marmalade or some marmalade. Um, usually I try and find recipes for marmalade because I often fail marmalade and it doesn't set quite enough. Mm. So I have a little repertoire of things to use marmalade but it's a beautiful it's it's it spreads out beautifully it has seville marmalade and uh, what else is it a bit of cream a bit of butter a bit of sugar and flaked almonds so it has none of those nasty candied fruit things that i don't like and you bake it spreads out beautifully you let it cool for a couple of minutes and then you roll it with a rolling pin mm. and that compresses it into this mm. beautiful crisp deliciousness, you let it cool down, paint it with melted chocolate, and then I just break it into shards and give it away. It's a beautiful thing. That is, okay, recipe but for that. I, the other I, one I, that I want to doing, make that, just by the way. You're going to make that? I'm going to make that. Yeah, it's very, it's very lovely. Um, particularly for people who have been put off Florentines by candied cherries in them. That's a subject for another day. Mm. Mm, that's another early childhood trauma. Oh, it's I Christmas. It we be. have to get the trauma We're, out of Christmas. It's it's what, that's what Christmas is it's about. Trauma in a sock. Trauma in a sock. Um, so we're going to make something that is the very poshest version of um, chocolate-dipped candied orange. Uh -huh. So another 
happier childhood memory mm. was that I always had a great passion for Terry's chocolate oranges. I think we can all imagine them in our minds, even as you speak. I know, they were a funny thing. Mm -hmm. And when you eat them as an adult, they're very disappointing. <laughs> The chocolate quality has been surpassed by our modern <laughs> taste for 71%. Yes, we've been spoiled. So what I'm going to make you do, so I'm going to hold the microphone, yes. and you are going to take my vegetable peeler mm -hmm. and you are going to peel from the top down to the bottom beautiful Just in one strips, sort of one oh. straight, so all the way down. Oh, gosh, I'm going to muck it up. Well, you're doing yeah, pretty yeah. well. Because you don't want any of the pith on it. That is beautiful, Jonathan. Thank you. Now, can you do the rest of the orange? The place? rest of the orange as well, oh, not well, just one. Yeah, well, oh, let's see if that was a fluke. Why am I doing this? Because I thought it might be nice for you to do it. Okay. You like it when you do the cooking, Oops, don't you? Oops, I'm getting pith there. Well, we can clean that You'll off with a knife. You'll get pissed off. They're getting a bit skinny now. Oh, you want fatter oh, ones? I want fat ones. Oh, yeah, that's, oh, the little hands are looking a bit... Beautiful. Oh, See, bit. there you go. See, Is that's that enough? A, that, yeah, that's lovely. Can I stop now? Yes, you can stop now. You can hold the microphone. Thank you. Just there. Oh, that was a good one. That's a beautiful one. So he you goes only three times my speed and twice as effective. You don't want nasty little ones because you have to go through a whole process. Yes, but Jonathan, this is because I've done this for 40 years and you've done that for 40 years. <laughs> or more. That, that is true. So... Well, that was a good one. They nice ones? Um, what I'm using is what's known as a speed peeler, mm -hmm. which is not a usual household item, is it? Well, that's my favourite style of peeler, I've got that to is, say. Is it? I like those. Um, it's not the plastic one that you get at the supermarket. It's the nice little stainless steel yes. one. So, so we now have from our two oranges a little pile of lovely, very thin pieces of orange thin, rind. Thin, but thick. You know what I mean. Um, so, well, there's the, there's the knife which went over there to cut the fruit cake for our afternoon tea. We had a cup of tea first with some yeah. cake. So, if, for example, we had one that had a lot of pith on it, oh, that's what I meant to is you can actually take your blade and tidy that off. Just as long as it's as sharp as yours, which... Yeah, well, you know, it's right. <laughs> So then we go through a process where we remove the bitterness from the peel. Yep. Into so a we put it into a pot. A pot. And we put a couple of inches, 10 centimetres, of cold water on it, and we bring it to the boil. So... Mm -hmm. Not long? Not long. It won't take long. We do that seven times. What? Yeah, seven Bring times. Bring it to the boil seven times. Bring it times. to the boil, strain it out, put fresh cold water on it. Bring it to the boil, strain it, put more cold water on it. it sounds very French. It is. And that, that, for someone who didn't know what we were talking about, that is the perfect segue. Go on. Well... I remember making these as a little apprentice at Stephanie's a long time ago. And they were known in the kitchen as Eugenie's. And I wanted to, I couldn't remember exactly what the process was. And I'm Googling Eugenie's. So did you bring Stephanie? She'd tell no, you. I Googled. <laughs> I Googled. I don't want to bother her with things like that. Okay. Um, so I Googled it and I got a lot of pictures of Princess Eugenie. You would, with that funny hat. <laughs> funny hat came up a lot. No reference to some, you know, chocolate orange thing at all. Oh. So eventually, I did ring Stephanie and I said, Stephanie, where do those Eugenies come from? Oh, and she said, they come from Michelle Girard. No. I said, oh, she said, they're in the back of his Cuisine Gourmand. It's right. So I went and got my copy of Cuisine Gourmand and sure enough is a recipe for Eugenie's. And the reason that they're called Eugenie's is his restaurant that has had three Michelin stars for more than 40 years um, is in a little village called Eugene Le Pre. Huh. 
So that was that was why I could find okay. no thing. But he writes a very beautiful recipe of the fact that you you, know, you do this with the oranges, you then blanch them seven times, and then you make a sugar syrup and you cook them for hours and hours um, where the, there is no movement. It's a barely shimmering movement mm. of the sugar syrup until they are completely translucent. Now... Wow. Yeah, and it is actually something that is incredibly difficult to execute on modern cooking equipment. It's all too hot. It's all too hot. So having been oh. to Mr Gerard's restaurant and been very lucky enough to have a tour of it, they have a very beautiful setup in the kitchens of something that is referred to as the piano. And the piano is the centrepiece of the kitchen and it's a beautiful cast iron um, embellished with brass stove that has many, many stations, many ovens underneath, you know, flat stove tops, you know, gas bits, you know, grills, the whole lot. It's a beautiful piece of equipment. It's the sort of thing that you see in, you know, movies, you know, not in, <laughs> not in your suburban, you know, Melbourne takeaway. Right. So the thing about that sort of stove is that it has hot spots and cool spots and things. So, so he could cool have spot for this. he could have his little Eugenie's, uh, you know, mur barely murmuring. I think was the expression. So what you need to do is it, they don't take hours and hours and hours once we get into the sugar syrup stage. So do mm. take a couple of hours of monitoring them quite nicely. Then we will fish them out of their sugar syrup. And we will have a bowl of melted chocolate. You know, I quite like them being quite dark. So, mm. you know, 55, 67, 71, you know, whatever your preference is. And you delicately dip each into chocolate. How fragile are they at the end of this? They're pretty good. They're pretty good in the sense that they are... The inherent structure of them is quite strong because they've been candied. So, hmm, okay. you know, the, the, the canning process helps with that. Um, and then, once the chocolate has dried, just looking, looking, looking for a sieve, um, once the chocolate has dried, they are then dusted in cocoa. And that's that. And they are one of the one most of the best things of the world. sublime things if you are a lover of the Terry's chocolate orange. They are one of the most beautiful things and an absolute gift of love and perseverance for those nearest and dearest to you at Christmas. As long as they know how much love and perseverance has gone into it. Well... I'll bring you some next time finished okay. and you can you can make a little you, you can you, you can circle back to it. This thing could only say, have been created with love and, and time. Yes. Yeah. Splendid. So there you go. Eugenies. Eugenies. So, Eugenies and Florentine, the French and the Italians. Beautiful. And those recipes, Eugenies, you will you will be boiling seven times. Yes. You will be barely disturbing your sugar syrup. You'll but be you will be you will, you will create bliss. You will create bliss. Andy, thank you. Recipes on the blueprint page at the Radio National website. And Annie, next time we meet, it will be for the Blueprint Christmas Spectacular. I know. I'm very excited about the Blueprint Christmas Spectacular. We're all going to have a, a, a splendid time at, at Paul Mangay's place. Have you got uh, any requests for the Blueprint uh, Spectacular? Menu? No. Hmm. Free reign. Up to you. Oh, okay. All right. Eugenies? Yeah, I'll bring you some Eugenies, because I should have had some for you today, but I haven't. Thank you so very much. It's my pleasure. Uh, when, I, when I say interior design, I wonder what, what springs to mind. 
Yeah, it, it, look, it's a complicated idea, isn't it? What is it? Light? Is it colour? Is it is it cushions? Is it, is it detail? Elegance, perhaps? I think uh, my guests would begin with a with a, a simple and delightful proposition: uh, joy. Think about that. <laughs> uh, they are the women behind award-winning interior design firm Arrington Pike. It's a, a business built around a design ethos that, yes, is, includes joy, colour, character, spirit, alchemy. They are their watchwords. Uh, now, there's a book, a collection of beautiful projects, Arrington Pike Interiors Beyond the Primary Palette is what it's called. And... The two eponymous people, <laughs> Juliet Arendt and Sarah Jane Pike, uh, join us now. Welcome, both of you. Thanks, Jonathan. It's lovely to be here. That idea of joy, how does that start to form in your mind at the beginning of a project? How do, you, how do you find that when you walk into a room you're about to transform? I think a lot of that is instinctive, isn't it, Juliet? We have a sense of how we want to create something that feels natural and feels like it's of that place and then we look to our client I guess for what will spark that joy for them what will be the inspiration that creates something truly special and memorable that's really particular to those people in that place. What's your sense of that Juliet? Yeah and I I guess we we always come from a design point of view where we're thinking about functionality and ease and of course, aesthetics and comfort. And Mm. then we, I guess, interweave all of those elements into what the client really is wanting to, how they're wanting to feel in the space. So we do really just get to know the clients and dig into all the details of their their everyday existence. And and then I guess what we're doing is we're, we're teasing out all of those those little details that can bring joy to your life when it's not it's not such a grand idea this sense of joy it's yes. really about just 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 the small moments that bring um, a sense of yeah ease and comfort into into our lives yeah and, and I guess that's why it, you know in in your in your practice that it's it is the the domestic uh, world that attracts you I, I wonder <laughs> is, is there as much joy in a commercial interior? I think there's absolutely joy in commercial interiors, but it's just come from our own natural place, which is that we as people, as as kind of two women as well, really thought about what it was that brought meaning and happiness into our lives. And we know how much impact having a home that works for you and feels amazing can bring into your life. Uh, Juliet, there's a wonderful thing. When, when you look at a book like this uh, of your work, when, when, I mean, it's the way most of us encounter design different ideas as in magazines or books and everything is perfect mm-hmm. and beautiful. Um, but, of course, that's not life, is it? Life is no, messy. Yeah. Life is, is cluttered and with little grubby stains on walls. That's right. And that's I think that's where we really flourish as designers also because of course, both SJ and I, we tend to kind of steer clients in a very kind of practical and functional mm. direction. And we're always thinking about, you know, usability and longevity. So um, longevity, particularly in materials, is is quite key to our business. And, you know, we're also designing so that things don't have to look like they're styled or clean within an inch of their life or they're out of a page of a magazine. So we're always thinking about how best our design works works for the client in in that particular environment as well. I wonder, Sarah, Sarah Jane, if that's you know over the fifteen years of your practice together. I mean, what has shifted? And I wonder if one of the things has shifted is a, a slightly more relaxed aesthetic. Um, you know, a, a more practical sense of, of interior. Oh, I think absolutely. I think we're both very practical by nature at heart, um, but that idea of feeling at home to us has really come to encompass feeling at ease. I mean, comfort has to be your number one priority and Mm. and feeling at ease for people is quite different. Some people need their house to look perfectly put together to feel comfortable, you know, and for those people, we're, we're all about maximising storage and making sure everything gets put away. And for others, it's having 
your objects on display and it's having a sense of the life being lived around you, I'm probably in the second category. So <laughs> it's about having, you know, plenty of walls for art and having like my son's bedroom is full of bookshelves that can have all of his funny little weird and wonderful things that they collect around him. And that for me feels more comfortable and more at ease. So that that's also a personal choice. Um, but there is something about being able to live your life with, you know, we talk about, we like to call it the invisible hand of the designer that just, you know, when things are just so and they work for you, that's that's the easiest way to be, to have that comfort. I like, Juliet, what Sarah Jade says there about the the invisible hand because I, yeah. I, I sense that there is a sort of an interesting tension in this between the aesthetic of the designer and the aesthetic of the people for whom you are designing. Yeah. To, to just yeah. tweak that a little towards something that will open a new world for those people is is, yeah. is a wonderful wonderful exercise. It is, and I think you know when you first start in a practice, you're often just people have very have a, have a very clear idea of where they'd like to go aesthetically. But I think we realise now that our job really is to push people and that that idea of um, surprise and delight in interior design. A lot of people that are in different fields, they aren't exposed to the things we're exposed to. So I guess, you know, we, we, we like to experiment and, and use different shape and form and but of course it has to be that it's particular for, for that client. But you really do want to have that element of, of whimsy and and, and hmm. delight in the, in the work that you do. Yeah, so I think they're the things that are lasting. And when we have feedback from clients, they mostly are about those little moments of colour or materiality or shape that could not have been just plucked out of a, a catalogue or a magazine. Colour is, of course, a, a, such a... Well, such a world, such a, such a wide and expansive universe. <laughs> what, what makes what makes colour work in a design? We we love colour, and I think when we started the business, also there wasn't a lot of colour happening. It was all very monochromatic, and I'd I'd say that's fit. there's been a fairly lasting trend of um, the beige and white tone yeah. on tone. Fifty fifty um, words for white. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. There are thousands of words for white, um, and that's absolutely fine. But no, we've always been really drawn to colour, both SJ and I, and beautiful textile and art, and you can bring colour through in the materiality you use, so different stones and timbers, mostly they're natural materials. And so we're really starting to compose and build up a palette from the beginning with with all those materials and those colours in mind, knowing that, of course, Colour changes, you know, so mm. a, a colour that we adore would look different in five different spaces. So mm. you're always tweaking and tuning the design accordingly. But, yeah, colour is just something that definitely has been always at the core of our business and luckily we've been able to experiment and, and again, kind of, I guess, push people a little bit outside their comfort zone, not with, like, a feature wall or a pop of colour, they're not really, that's not really our vibe, but we we love exploring different elements of tertiary palette, like sludgy, sludgy tones and milky. So it's, 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 I guess it's all the tones of colours that we just adore. Is it, is it, from a practice point of view, is it, is it a, a more exciting project to respond to an existing form or to be part of a build, which, which is, is the most, you know, interesting as, as a project? When, when you have a new build, you have this kind of endless possibility feeling and this the sense that anything could happen. But when you work within parameters or, or when you work with sort of restriction in a sense of the existing building, it does kind of squeeze different answers out of you. It does kind of push you to do things in a different way and sometimes even be more creative, I think. Yeah, and I think I think just to add on to that, yep. I'd say that more more often than not, we are working with within older buildings, or it's an alteration and addition that that um, is a contemporary a contemporary addition to an existing um, older style home. So there, we're we're working in two vernaculars, which I think actually has has been the kind of um, the real tipping point of our particular practice and the way we're able to really love, um, uh, you know, beautifully stitch those two those two styles together, you know, something quite new with something older. 
I'm intrigued too with you know that that idea of colour. Yes, but after that, my mind sort of turns towards material and texture and how those things play in that environment as well. I mean, it, it's 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 a wonderfully complex range of tools you have at your disposal. Oh, it's yeah, it's endless actually, and I think um, that is the the joy of working with a team of people because, of course, then you're bringing in. You know, we have a team of 13 women, mostly designers. And hmm. so you've got a lot of different backgrounds and aesthetics. And, and, and so therefore, that possibility just, it's immense. And I'm guessing, Sarah-Jane, that you, you two and your, your team of 13, that you're all pretty mad keen shoppers. <laughs> I think it's one of the, <laughs> one of the um, side effects of the job is actually... The always job. looking. You're always looking. You're always looking. It's sort of an um, occupational hazard. But um, it is certainly about being exposed to different things all the time and always looking at everything and assessing every environment you're in. I think sometimes it can be very boring to go on holidays with interior designers. <laughs> you want to go into every restaurant but also check the bathroom at every restaurant, you know. <laughs> and but I can't go to a new restaurant without using the, the bathroom and checking out what they've done there. And so, yeah, and, and looking, sitting sitting somewhere in a beautiful space and saying, oh, I love what they've done with the lighting here, you know. So I think we do, we just have that sort of, you can't turn that off. And you mentioned there, Sarah-Jane, the bathrooms, and I, and I wonder how critical that is in in the scheme of design is those those highly practical utility areas, whether that's – is that where everything begins? Uh, definitely um, bathrooms have so much impact on how we enjoy our day. I mean, it's part of our morning ritual. It's part of your evening ritual. It's often the only time you're alone um, in a day. And so having a bathroom that has some space for that um, contemplation and serenity I think is the ultimate – Joy, Juliet. It's, it's such a wonderful book, and, and eighteen um, interiors brought together. I wonder what what you learned about your practice in compiling that in, in that that survey of your work. Oh yeah, it was it was such a great experience. I mean, we were we were lucky from the point of view that Sarah Jane and I actually had quite a bit of time together because as as the business has has progressed, we have less and less time together. So it's been the ultimate plus from, from working on the book together. And, you know, in terms of work, we we did include some of the older projects and we cl- included some of the projects that really were, you know, us really kind of being quite experimental and, and having clients that were ready for us to push them and push ourselves. But I would say that on a whole, it's, it's really about that exploration of, texture and materiality and not having spaces where everything looks like it's brand new. I think that Hmm. is quite key and true to our work, that we want them to feel like they are appropriate for for the location, for the owner, and that the owners have a real sense of ownership of their home. It doesn't feel like we've put their we've put our stamp all over their home. It has to feel relaxed and, and full of ease. Well, there's there's yeah, there's, there's inspiration on, on every page. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, the book is called Arrington Pike, Interiors Beyond the Primary Palette. And you've been listening to Juliet Arrington and Sarah-Jane Pike. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Time now on Blueprint for... Ow! I just sat on one. (laughs) Colin Bissett. The office is a treasure trove of clever design. Along with the various clips and binders, most of which we thought would become redundant as the world became computerised and paperless, you'll normally find a little container of drawing pins. You might call them thumbtacks or pushpins, depending on where you're from, but their essence and their usability is the same the world over. They're just another in a battery of tiny workplace heroes, always on hand to help out. Nails and tacks of all sorts have been around since people learned how to forge metal. The idea of tacks being used to pin papers to a board became popular in the 18th century as drafting became part of the new professions of engineer and architect. 
Tacks had long been used for upholstery, keeping stretched fabric or hide in place. But these had a long shaft and were intended only for single use. The drawing pin was small and stubby, just long enough to hold technical drawings in place while they were being worked on and then easy to remove. Officially, it was invented at the turn of the 20th century, but its creation is all a bit murky. Three men in three different countries supposedly had their eureka moment all within a three-year period. That this even merits comment shows the importance of this seemingly insignificant little fastener. The first was Edwin Moore, an American who, in 1900, came up with what he called a pushpin. His pin had an elongated metal head, making it easy to grip and pull out, and very like the multicoloured plastic-headed pins one can buy today. He started the Moore Push Pin Company and made variations on his theme, adding coloured or longer heads around which thread could be wound, helpful if showing the route of a ship, for instance, or in some other display. These are now more commonly called map pins. Over in Germany in 1903, a clockmaker in Leichen called Johann Kirsten came up with his idea for a flat-headed pin intended to hold drawings on a board. It was an all-in-one design, a flat metal disc with a triangular wedge cut out on two sides and bent down to form the sharp pin. An overscaled version stands in the centre of the town today as a memorial to their famous son. And yet, in the same year, a Yorkshireman named Mick Clay supposedly came up with the same thing, also intended to be used for technical drawings. No one is quite certain whether it was Clay's or Kirsten's pins that a German entrepreneur called Otto Lindstedt saw, but he took the idea and patented it as his own in 1905, a touch of unexpected skullduggery in the drawing pin world. While the origin of the drawing pin remains a tad mysterious, the importance of its presence has never been questioned. Its usefulness might have come under siege with the invention of sticky tapes in America in the 1920s, known as scotch tape there and sellotape in Britain. But the fact that a pin didn't stick to a paper but still helped attach it to a surface gave it a life beyond the drawing board. The beauty of a drawing pin is, in fact, its sustainability, the way it can be used again and again, even when rusty. Its humbleness is its genius. Artists have found beauty in the tiny fastener too, like André Woolery, who used the differently coloured heads of drawing pins to create portraits that shimmer like sequins. The drawing pin remains a staple of the notice board, enabling information to be passed around or advertised. Tiny in size, shiny by nature, and always useful, without it we might all have been less well-informed. Colin, thank you. Uh, we'll be pinning that icon with the others on the ABC Listen app. You can catch all our things there, including, of course, Return Ticket, our Travel of the Mind podcast, Timbuktu, Venice, Las Vegas, destinations are plenty, including the spectacular Paris by Baguette and why Tasmania is a terrible place. That's on the ABC Listen app. I'm Jonathan Green. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.